Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see that day approaching. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall those earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse, to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward, for you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous ones will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we are not among those who shrink back, and so are lost, but among those who have faith, and so are saved. It's the word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. Thank you, Molly. I've been giving the scripture readers pretty long passages, so give, give them a high five this summer. So we're in the book of Hebrews. We're actually uh, pretty far into the book of Hebrews now. And if, if you've been around with us for this summer, I began the series by telling you that I wanted to study Hebrews because I was longing for a pilgrimage. I'd been reading uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and it reminded me of my adventurous past road tripping across the U.S. in my 20s. And, uh, and this is how I phrased it when we started the series. I said that I've lost a little of that groping to move towards something. I feel a little stuck or grounded in the same place, particularly spiritually. And that's why I wanted to study Hebrews. Hebrews is an account of God's redemption story. And he uses all these images from the past to reawaken in God's people who they are and for what they were created. And it, cre- it, it takes stories of God's people from Scripture to help us see our own participation is real today. God's people journeying toward him. So that's how we 
That's how we framed studying the book of Hebrews. And if you were there, then you might remember that I asked you, do you want to be an associate of Christianity or an affiliate of Christianity? Is your life just a, a subscription to faith, something that you occasionally access? Or do you maybe long to be a pilgrim? And I hope after a season in Hebrews, you see a distinction between just checking in as a Christian subscriber and, and living as a pilgrim in God's story. And now we're, we're turning to these passages that are going to talk about what it means to live uh, in that pilgrimage. And if you remember, we talked about that it doesn't mean that we live in that pilgrimage by shaping up the way that we live, by doing a better job. That's not possible. Instead, we do that by better understanding the story of Jesus and how his life makes it possible for us follow after him to be in God's presence. As evangelists, the, the uh, character in Pilgrim's Progress who talks to the pilgrim says, do you see yonder shining light? Keep that light in your eye and go directly there too. That's what this part of Hebrews is taking us towards. Do we really want to be in Jesus' presence? We might not mind being a Christian, but more deeply, do we want to know God? Hebrews 1 through 9, chapters 1 through 9, tells us all about how Christ makes the way for us to God's presence. The good news that we learn from Hebrews 2 is that Christ is the one who's blazed that trail. He's gone before us. And we learned in Hebrews 8 and 9 how he did that through his blood shed and his body broken. How he gave everything to open the path so that we can, as Hebrews 10 is saying, enter with confidence. So tonight, we say thank you to the Hebrews preacher for such a thorough retelling of God's mercy and faithfulness through all of history. Thank you, Hebrews preacher, for such a cogent retelling of what Christ has accomplished for us. And now we enter the homestretch of Hebrews. Chapters 10 through 13. And those chapters are about the home stretch of faith for us. We've heard these echoes and retellings of many stories of God's people. And we, we've been asked to imagine ourselves in those stories. And tonight, we start talking about not just the past, but the future. How do we want to keep getting closer to the presence of God? And the question before us is, shall we carry on? We saw the past. Maybe we've decided to join the pilgrimage. And shall we carry on towards that light? There's actually theories that John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is, act, is based on this section of Hebrews. In that book, the main character, Christian, says to himself, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go. Than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Gathering to worship together Sunday nights when we do this is our way of saying this to each other. Pluck up heart to this difficult mountain. 
It does mean forsaking everything to be with Jesus. The mountain of life in Christ is difficult, but it's good. It's worth it. It means letting go of our trinkets and our treasures that rust and rot so that we can hold Christ's hand as he hikes us up the slope to God's presence. And not everyone wants that. Hebrews 3 and 4 reminded us that the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt instead of entering the promised land. The propensity of our heart is not always to say, I want to go to the presence of God. But Hebrews 10 is offering us the opportunity to enter. Enter where? Where are we going if we enter what the text calls the new and living way that he opened for us through his flesh? Well, figuratively speaking, Christ's body is the new tabernacle, the place where God is clear and bright, fiery and shining, holy and amazing. And that's where through Christ we can enter. We enter back into Eden through Christ. And his death and resurrection are the trailhead. Our species, our planet, is exiled from God's presence. But somehow Christ's death reopened our passage back to God. We pass through his body and blood and our lives are sheltered by the Spirit in a way that makes it possible for us to go back to him. We're not in Eden yet, but because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we're brought back to God. And the essence of that faith, the essence of wanting to be a Christian is just that, is is wanting to be in the presence of God. You know, some of us believe that the ethics of Christianity are the objective of Christian faith. And no doubt, if our ethics contradict Christianity, that should make us question the depth of our relationship to God. But if you consider yourself a Christian, be careful not to mistake the values of Christianity with a relationship with God. Be careful not to mistake things like justice and sexual, sexual integrity and the alleviation of poverty and the pacifying of violence with the actual relationship. Those are concerns of the Christian. They're fruits of the Christian faith to care about those things, but they're not the bond. And that's part of what Hebrews 10 is getting us towards. Others of us confuse the benefits of the gospel as faith. I once preached at a friend's church, and I was waiting up front, and as he entered the sanctuary, he came up to me, and he went like this, he went... Give me that grace. And I said, I just thought, that's so weird. What are you doing? (laughs) I've never forgotten that because to me it was the best representation I've ever seen of how Christians can confuse the relationship with the benefits. Our faith is not some cosmic do-over or some therapeutic serum that we put in to make us feel a little better. It's the renovation of our hearts. Grace is not some medicine to soothe our consciences. It's actually the the agency that comes in and changes us to make us back to creatures that can be in the presence of God. It's the thing that shields us from the heat that would otherwise destroy 
our imperfect bodies and souls. That's actually what verses 26 through 31 are talking about. Christianity is not just about giving a bunch of people do-overs all day long. God is real, and, and something needs to change for us to be in his presence. But instead of us doing that work, he puts himself on the path of our consequences, that over time, he might shape and form us back into his image, and thus back into his presence. A world of people living in God's design starts with grace, and it leads to justice and mercy and integrity. The gospel eases our shame, our guilty shame, and it fortifies our ethics. But the gospel at its heart is about God's people being in relationship with him like they were in Eden. The gospel is not a set of ethics, nor is it a set of benefits. It's the fulcrum on which creation pivots back toward Eden, with the results being grace and justice. Notice that until now, Hebrews, you know, if you've read the Bible much, um, especially the letters of the New Testament, there's commands and imperatives in them. Notice that until now, Hebrews has barely given us any imperatives or prescriptions. Nor does it simply encourage us to just drift sleepily through life in a cheap grace. It's storytelling that points our eyes, not on a way of living, but on God himself. And it calls us to walk closer and closer to him. Never wavering. Like Evangelist says to Pilgrim, Do you see yonder shining light? Keep that light in your eye and go directly there too. Some of the most spellbinding parts of Scripture are the stories where God and his people are together in presence and in friendship. I love those stories. Like when Moses is with God's spirit. He's up on Mount Sinai, and God hides him in the cleft of a rock and passes by, allowing Moses to see the spirit opaquely as it passes by. Or when Elijah felt exhausted and defeated, and God sits him down under a broom tree, and an angel visits him and bakes him bread over hot stones and refreshes him with a cool jug of water. Or when Jesus takes... Peter, James, and John to pray on the mountain and they encounter Moses and Elijah of all people. There's so many stories where God's people slow down to eat some bread or rest and spend time in his presence. And that's what it means to draw near to him. Not to change the way that you live, but just to spend a moment in his presence. And Hebrews wants us to know that this is the life on offer to us. A life where we draw near to God through Christ, hidden in the Spirit. But that's rarely what we're encouraged toward. Christianity is more popularly distilled as a set of ethical imperatives, or maybe your best life now, or mere subscriptions to some beliefs that you're just like, yeah, I believe that, so I'm a Christian, or cheap grace to just make you feel a little bit better. And these views mistake ideas with the relationship with the living God. Jesus didn't die and raised from the grave so that we could sign up for some ideas. 
He died and rose from the grave so that we could know him. One of the ways that I've seen this play out is in the idea of a quiet time. Maybe you've grown up around the church and you're familiar with this term. And a quiet time is a great thing. It's just a time of of praying and reading the Bible. It's good to wake up and pray and hear from God by reading his word. That's the best. It's the best way you can start your day. That can be like your cleft of the rock that you hide in like Moses or your broom tree like Elijah or your mountain of the transfiguration. When you conceive of your prayer time as the place where you enter God's presence, it becomes a good thing. But sometimes that can have this pressure, and that pressure makes it less fruitful. Um, Often, quiet times can be about getting an insight. Instead of just reading scripture to let it wash over you and praying to talk to God, there's this pressure to sit with books and journals and Gain a new theological nugget of knowledge. And if you don't, you walk away thinking that was a failure. Um, The phrase, uh, thinking about insight-based quiet times, uh, that that really helped me when I heard someone say that in a sort of critical way a couple years ago. I can't remember. uh, I'll just name the two people I think I heard it from. It's either Matt Brown, who's a pastor in Brooklyn, uh, or Greg Thompson, who used to be a pastor in Charlottesville. I heard it from one of them. And they were pointing out how we're so conditioned to view our prayer and study as quality only if we get something out of it, like an insight that we walk away with. As if time spent with God is only worthy if we journal and learn something new. And I was so freed by that because it it just made me think, maybe I'm just supposed to read scripture. Maybe I'm just supposed to let God talk to me and I'm not going to get what it means all the time. Maybe I'm just supposed to stop and acknowledge or seek the presence of my God, my creator, my savior, like a friend, like a lover. I miss living near mountains for this very reason. When I, when I lived in Boulder, Colorado, I lived right at the base of a mountain. And it was just part of my life to stop, pull over my car, sit down and talk to God. Friends, if you were a Christian... And you don't have time in God's presence. What do you have? Don't confuse being identified with Christianity or church membership with having a life in God. And that's not to pressure you. I'm not trying to say you better better do it different. I'm saying don't miss out on on something that is so good. And don't, don't think that you're getting it when you're confused church membership or being called a Christian with just spending time with God. Remove that pressure of the insight-based quiet time. You know, what would a friendship be if you never see each other and you're barely acquainted? Forget whether you gain a new nugget of information when you read the Bible or a new comprehension of yourself. Take that demand off. But do draw near to God. That's what Hebrews 10 is saying. If you're doing that, if you're drawing near to him, if you're a mess, if you don't understand what the Bible is saying and you're reading it slowly and barely getting through anything, but you're spending time just pausing throughout your day, man, you possess a lot. Being a Christian doesn't mean waking up and grinding through the day, busying with work and exercise and activities and consumption, all the while identifying as a Christian. That's not being a Christian. Subscribing to 
Christianity is not faith. Spending time with God, that is our faith. And that's not a threat. It's just, it's just a thought. Don't worry about gaining new insights or having some takeaway. Just try to bump into God throughout your day through prayer and reading scripture. For some of us, that just means having an app on your phone. And when you have two minutes in your day, you open up and just read whatever pops up on your screen. It's from scripture. You know, or maybe it just means that uh, praying in the shower might be the best time you have with God for months. Life is hectic. I know that for many of you. Salem Prez is not a, a congregation, a general population of people who I would say just kind of hang out and can't find ways to spend their time. It's a congregation with a lot of commitments. I just don't want you to wait to meet with God because you feel like you need a cup of coffee and a devotional and a Bible and a highlighter and a pencil and a moleskin journal and a scented candle and headphones and a cozy spot. Okay, because that's really what I think people think is if you can't do that, then why even spend time with God? If you don't have a cup of coffee and a devotional and a Bible and a highlighter and a pencil and a moleskin journal and a scented candle and headphones and a cozy spot, then maybe I just won't pray. Just say hi to God because you have confidence to enter into Him, into His presence because of Jesus. That's what Hebrews 10 is saying. That's being a Christian. Being in the presence of God is Christianity. Let me highlight two places where the Bible says we experience the presence of God. Throughout Paul's letters, he tells us in different ways that the Spirit of God dwells in our body. This is what we're talking about with Moses in the rock or Elijah under the tree or having morning prayer. At times it's clear that Paul's saying we're like a shelter for the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit occupies our innermost spaces, naturally if the Spirit dwells in believers, then pausing to be with the Spirit is one way to enjoy God. In my life this year, I've been waking up and sitting either in our living room or our front porch facing east as the sun rises. And I've been reading the Old Testament in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, The Message. Now that might sound like I've got my cozy spot in my Moleskine journal and stuff, but I'm in the book of Numbers. And if you know where the book of Numbers is, you know I haven't gotten very far. But what's been great is instead of trying to gain a bunch of insights, I just try to start my day in God's presence. My motivation is just to know God deeply. And right now that happens when I sit facing east, letting a page or two about God focus my attention on his presence in my life and closing with a few remarks from myself to him and some moments of silence. There's other times in the Bible when we learn that God's presence is found amongst his people. When people who are the vessels of the Spirit are assembled, his presence is felt. In some of Paul's letters, you can't tell in the English, but the word you is really y'all. Like in Philippians 2, when Paul says uh, he began a good work in you, you probably know that passage. Paul doesn't say he who began a good work in you, person. He says, he who began a work in y'all. 
That passage is about God working through the body, not individuals. Paul's saying, your body, as in the plural you, a singular body, meaning when we come together, we who possess the Spirit, there's a communion with God that happens. And Hebrews wants us to experience that, not to neglect it. Hebrews knows that happens when we gather together as God's people. That's why it says, let us stir one another to love toward good works, not neglecting to meet together. Remember a better possession without shrinking back. That's a lot of prescriptions from a preacher who's resisted imperatives for most of the sermon, right? Let us stir one another toward love. Let us stir one another toward good works. Let us not neglect to meet together. Let us remember a better possession. Let us not shrink back. Let's name what shrinking back looks like. There's 168 hours per week. Okay? Let's say you're getting eight hours of sleep per night. I highly doubt that in this congregation. That leaves 112 hours a week of waking hours. Let's say you work 50 hours a week. That leaves you with 62 hours where you're not working or sleeping. So shrinking back is just getting in your brain that you just can't get with God. Or you just can't get with God's people on Sunday night. I know it's hard. I know. But that 90 minutes, it's not an obligation to keep. And I don't bring up this math to make you feel bad. It's just something to say, let's struggle to fight for this because, man, the fruit is good. We don't take attendance here at this church, okay? And this is not a comment on church attendance. There's no passive-aggressive church attendance talk happening right now, okay? It's just that worship is totally different than anything else you will ever do in your entire life, in your community, anywhere, even with other Christians. It's totally, it's a it's totally different act of fellowship that you participate in. It's a healthier culture of God's kingdom. Being away from worship is how you cultivate and grow your crazy false narratives. I don't know if you remember that from earlier in Hebrews when we talked about these crazy narratives that we tell ourselves. Like, wouldn't it be great to go back to Egypt, to slavery, instead of the promised land? That's what Hebrews says in Hebrews 3 and 4. And it's referencing the Old Testament when the Egyptians had that really silly idea. Or when the Israelites had that really silly idea. Paul David Tripp says this. This is where corporate worship helps profoundly. The regular gathering of God's people for worship serves to shift your meditation from complaint to gratitude. By reminding you of who you really are. And confronting you with the beautiful and faithful mercy of God toward you. And we have an advantage because we meet in the evening so you can sleep in. If you travel to the beach or the mountains, you can get back in time. For that cosmos altering gathering of people. If you have some chance in your weekend to do meal prep and get a project done. Or if you work on the weekends, like I do. You probably have a weekday off. 
But don't give up meeting together. I know that sounds a little harsh, and I'm not. I'm trying to avoid making that like a guilt trip thing. But if you're too busy to be at church consistently, that's that's silly. That's silly. Figure out how to rearrange those 62 hours. Not because it's wrong. Not because it's immoral. It actually makes perfect sense socially in our culture that it's hard to get to church. But it's silly. I was just talking to my friend this morning about people leaving his church. He's had a number of members leave his church. And we were remarking that people often leave churches or skip church because they feel that they're not getting something out of it. But what they forget, and what my friend and I were talking about, is actually that people cherish them. I'm sad when people miss church because I'm encouraged to see your faces. I love you beautiful saints. And when you sing, something mystical happens in me. In fact, the church I preached at this morning, the worship leader said he was just a little overwhelmed by hearing everyone's voices. He wished everyone could hear it from the place he was in in the sanctuary with this cacophony of people singing that they believe that God is alive and pouring that over him. Hearing voices, seeing your faces, even if you're struggling to get anything out of church, if you're struggling, just know that you're still serving a great vocation, which is that you're lifting up the spirits of other people towards the presence of God by you being here. If not, you go about your week with a small view of the world when you're not with your brothers and sisters in this embassy of the kingdom that we call church. In worship, we sing to God and we hear the boom of the crowd, all believing that God is real and loving and near to us. People in our worship services have confessed that they are at each other's throats in their marriage at that very moment. That hasn't happened as much lately, so I'm just saying, we can do that. That's happened. People have said, I got a prayer request. I'm having a hard time living with this person who's my spouse. That doesn't happen in other places. A few weeks ago, a child who was baptized in the NICU at Baptist Hospital came to this community who baptized him in worship. One time... I don't know the significance of this, but we were meeting back at Green Street where we used to meet. We used to leave the doors open in the spring and the fall, and a cat walked in and made it all the way down the aisle. Some of you remember this? All the way up, and then was pretty much eyeing the communion table and jumping up on it, and Ben Milner just had to stop his sermon and say, y'all, we got a cat in here. We got a Somebody's got to get this cat, okay? This is going way back, but some of you might remember that there was a time where a child, uh, this is before Salem had childcare, okay? And there was a family leading worship, and they had their kids up there with them. And their son, who's probably five, just unplugged his dad's guitar, <laughs> just, just pulled it out. And this guy's trying to lead worship, so I tried to help, so I grabbed the son tried to carry him out. I didn't have kids at the time. I don't really know how to carry a kid. He's five. And he just starts screaming and kicking me. It's the only time I've ever been kicked in church. And his screams really made it sound like he was being kidnapped. Okay? But church worship is just peculiar. I mean, there's just 
You know, I guess I just bring up the cat and, and that story to say that there's something peculiar. In a more holy sense, people do confess the struggles of their marriage. You know, we mark a child and we say, this is a child of God. And we watch that child come out of the hospital and into this space. And maybe one day we will get to see that child take communion. In the parlance of Ben Milner, the empire wants you to go out of town for the weekend. The empire wants you to freak out about work on Monday. The empire wants you to believe that no one at church really knows you or likes you or needs you to be here. That all leads to what the empire really wants, which is for you to believe that God is just an idea, not the creator that we can know with intimacy. Church is not always exciting, and reading the Bible will not always yield an insight. But to give up on those is to give in to the empire. And the empire is lame. Okay? It's a place where pettiness thrives. It's the place where injustice is overlooked. It's the place where violence is condoned. It's the place where beauty is suppressed. Not giving up on meeting together is an act of treason against the empire. We might be chasing children and falling asleep, but we're attending a meeting of the king. And by doing so, we're declaring that we are treasonous rebels against the empire, eager to be known as citizens of the kingdom. We're people whose pleas turn from griping to gratitude. We're people who make public gathering with music and literature. We're people who, even when we feel nothing, are fed by the God of the universe. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we acknowledge that he has made a way for us to himself. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we acknowledge that the Spirit is in us. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we confess that God is not an idea to subscribe to. God is the one who fills us up and sustains us and loves us. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we confess that we will not give up on meeting together. We will stir each other up to love and good works. We will struggle together. We will have compassion on one another. And we will not, as it says at the end of the chapter, we will not be destroyed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, then let's eat this supper.